0: Two decades, 20 solar returns, 7,300 days, nice and round number. On September 11, 2001, uh, your humble narrator rose like any other day, except it was not like any other day. I rode the subway from my apartment in Brooklyn to Manhattan every day. I had a stand, but this one day I got a seat and everybody, the train went outside, was looking out the window and I wondered what it could be. Uh, I wasn't interested enough to leave my seat. But when I got out at Grand Central Station, I knew something was different. There was smoke in the air. People were panicked and it was not a typical day in New York City. Uh, My friend Roger Mayer and my uh, co-host, he was in New York City as well. My friend Pete Liska uh, was overseas and he was touched by 9-11. I don't think there's a man, woman or child on planet Earth that was not Touched by 9 11, uh, Generation X and the millennials that followed us finally got their uh, monoculture event uh, similar to um, Pearl Harbor or the assassination of John F. Kennedy. More importantly, than myself and my co host, we have the privilege and honor to have uh, Lauren K. Johnson with us today, who is not only a veteran of uh, the uh, Air Force and served uh, overseas uh, in Afghanistan in particular. She's also comes from a military family and her mother served. So we are gonna get to have the privilege to hear from a multi-generational military family that um, women served. So uh, we're very uh, pleased and excited to have that. Um, Lauren is also a writer She has written for some prestigious publications such as the Washington Post, Atlantic, and Glamour. So uh, without further ado, um, I'm just gonna quote an unlikely individual, uh, Axel Rose. What's so civil about war? Anyway, let's ask that question. We'll look back and we'll look forward on today's $5 Buzz. So Lauren, thank you for being here today. I read one of your stories and one of the letters that your mother wrote to you, your mother served in the Persian Gulf um, military operation, Desert Storm or Desert Shield. I always get them confused, but the date was January 1991. In January 1991, I myself was a senior in high school. Uh, You were growing up. I, I was a freshman in high school, I apologize, and not that important, but you grew up. In Seattle, Seattle, 1991, uh, there was an explosive situation going on uh, in terms of music and culture. Uh, Seattle was not a stranger to music. They had Jimi Hendrix, they had Heart, they even had Sir Mix-a-Lot. But at that point in time, there was Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden. I'm sure I'm missing some other individuals, but Mud uh, Honey, Mud Honey, of course. <laughs> Warren, what do you remember? I think you were a little too young to catch that vibe or that wave, but do you remember, was there something different about growing up in that part of the world at that particular time?
1: Oh man. I love that. Sir Mix a lot. Got a shout out there. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, I was a little too young to appreciate that. And you know, my perspective is limited to growing up here at this time. So I can't speak to if it's different than, than something else. Um, I didn't really feel the impact of that movement until middle school era where my peers were starting to really get into nirvana. I saw the album cover t-shirts for, for Nevermind all around and I just thought that's a weird picture. I, I was a decidedly uncool kid so I didn't get on that bandwagon until much later in life kind of as I moved away. My um, graduated high school here in the Seattle area, and then went to school in Los Angeles, home to Roger and Peter, and didn't come back to this area until post-military, post-grad school, living um, actually in all four corners of the country before coming back to the upper left one, and have definitely gained an appreciation for it, having lived elsewhere, and you still can't turn on the radio around here without hearing Nirvana or Pearl Jam or Soundgarden. So, Yeah, I appreciate it now, kind of in in retrospect, and um, enjoy a lot of that era's music, but definitely missed the boat when it was first coming up.
0: Yeah, that's understandable. Um, I guess it's hard to appreciate something as it happens. Uh, I think we could all relate to that. Uh, More importantly, and I forgot Duff McKagan, Guns N' Roses, from Seattle. Love. Shout out to Duff. Anyway, let's move on from music. And more importantly, um, you grew up in a military family, but um, I, I could say for myself, I don't know too many families where uh, a mother served and then a daughter served. Can you tell us what it was, what that dynamic was like? What was it like with your mother serving and what kind of influenced you to follow that same trajectory?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, there are a, a great number of service members who are legacy service members. Yeah. So yeah. something like 80%, um, don't quote me on that, but it's, it's a very high number. from military families but the dynamic of mother-daughter is certainly not as common Um, for me my mom was a reservist so we didn't have that kind of traditional military environment growing up on a base where everyone around us was military i don't consider myself a military brat Um, i don't think i can claim that term because we didn't live on a base or even in a, a military town um didn't move around a lot. Didn't, didn't move around exactly. Yeah. Being, being in the reserves. And that was a, my mother's deliberate ce- decision to go to reserves after serving active duty for a few years, because she wanted that stability. She wanted to have a family and, and have that stability for, for us as well. So really the military was kind of a, you know, not an ever present part of our lives for the most part, she would put on her green clothes and go camping weeks a year and we liked to you know pretend that we were camping too and (laughs) cook hot dogs over the the wood stove and talked about it kind of vaguely but it was you know more like something kind of happening on the side as opposed to something that was ruling our lives like I think the feeling tends to be for a lot of military kids with that you know ever present we see planes flying overhead and tanks driving by our house and mom or dad is um you know, moving the family around every every few years. I didn't, didn't have that. Um, and I'm grateful for that stability. So really when the military became at the forefront of our lives was with Desert Storm. Um, my mom's hospital unit was activated in November, actually Thanksgiving weekend of 1990. She got the call that they were put on standby and kind of thought that nothing would would happen. It was a 750 personnel unit. They always assumed they were too big and expensive to deploy. And their their legacy orders from the Vietnam era were to go to Germany to, to backfill for active duty members who were deploying out of there um, into the, the Middle East. But um, obviously that, that didn't happen and she ended up going to Saudi Arabia. So, um, really the military swooped in very quickly and ultimately swooped out very quickly as well. She was gone for about four months total, which was also a blessing in hindsight. Um, Didn't know it was gonna be that way at the time. Her orders were actually for an undetermined length of up to two years. Mm -hmm. So she was staring down the barrel of what she thought um, may very well be a suicide mission Mm -hmm. with the prospect of nuclear powers becoming involved. Um, and she thought, you know, if she returned, she might be returning to kids who hardly remembered her, which is something, as a mother now, I can't even fathom. Uh, just having that that thought in my mind. But as a kid, as a seven-year-old, I wasn't wasn't privy to that information. So I just knew my mom was was leaving, and that she was going to help people who who needed help, and it was the army's job, and she was part of that, and. I was scared and kind of angry, but also really proud of my mom for, for doing something to help other people. Right. I think I only answered half your question. So feel free to re-ask the second part.
2: I believe the second part was really just, you know, with that, how did you enter into the military? You know, what was your inspiration? I mean, was it your mother? Was it something else? You know, when, when, and what year did you, what year did you
1: join? I technically, Um, I commissioned in 2006. So I became an officer in the Air Force in 2006. But I signed a military contract shortly after 9-11 to go to to college on an ROTC scholarship. So 9-11 was part of the impetus for that. But there are a lot of connections between my mom's service and her, her role in my life and my admiration for her. That's, Ultimately led me down the, that path, and this is something that I've explored a lot in my writing. That was a question that I I got frequently when I first started writing and talking about this, and I didn't know how to answer it for a long time. And it's taken some some real kind of excavating of my own motivations and trying to put myself back in my shoes as an 18 year old in the wake of 9/11. And you know, actually speaking of music, I have a, a do have a musical connection to. 1990, 91. That is decidedly less cool than the grunge movement. But um, I'm sure you all remember the song "God Bless the USA" by Lee Greenwood. That kind of became a Desert Storm anthem, and we heard that song a lot during Desert Storm. When my mom got back, she had a, a cassette tape with that song on it, and she would often speak in our classrooms and go to Veterans Day assemblies and. If we were in a a small group setting, she would play that song and talk about how she and her fellow service members would listen to it in Saudi Arabia, and it reminded them that people were thinking of them at home and that, you know, we were all in this together to some extent. And she usually cried when she was playing that song, and and we all would cry too. And I remember driving home from school on September eleventh, two thousand one, and you know here in. The Seattle area, we were detached in a lot of ways. Things happened um, much earlier in the morning. I woke up to the news on my alarm radio that was set or on my alarm clock that was set to the radio and they were talking about potential terrorist attack that had just happened and listened to the news on the way to school. And then we were all glued to to TVs at school, but it felt very far away and kind of surreal because we weren't directly impacted at the moment. But driving home after school that day, there were people lining the streets with American flags and with, with signs saying, you know, honk, if you love America, God bless the USA, all that you know, swell of patriotism that we felt on September 11th and September 12th. And I drove past an intersection, kind of the main intersection, where this was all happening and crested a hill, and then Lee Greenwood came on the radio And I just burst into tears. It was a total unexpected swell of emotion. And I had to actually pull over my car because I thought it was going to (laughs) crash. And I think something kind of awakened in me at that moment. This feeling that I had felt when my mom deployed and when she got back and the community who had embraced us this whole time she was gone. It just embraced her as, as kind of this almost mythical heroic figure and had that very, you know, unified patriotic feeling around that time. I felt that similar thing after 9-11. And I, I think there's something inherent in me and in a lot of people that, that drives us to that military decision. Maybe it's a nature, maybe it's a nurture, maybe a combination of the two but 9-11 was kind of the the trigger that, that awakened that for me. And from there, I, you know, took that aptitude test that a lot of seniors in high school take to see if you'll be a good fit for the military and just applied to scholarships to, you know, see what would happen. And when I got an offer, um, you know, and there was the financial incentive behind that. I got a full ride offer to my dream school on the, the beach and. Los Angeles, um, but there was also a lot of, a lot percolating under the surface with me wanting to follow in my mom's footsteps. Both my grandfathers served as well. So definitely a a family tradition and something that we, you know, talked about and and had a lot of family pride in. So looking back, that definitely nudged me in that direction. And then the the series of events kind of um, just set that path for me.
2: So you enter into the military uh, at, at 18, you say, right after 9-11. Was you were 18 at the time? Yes. And it was the Air Force you joined, right? So and that's what you were that they got into. So tell me, I mean, just how how soon did you get in before you were deployed?
1: So I did my four years of ROTC. And commissioned in June of 2006, and then I actually entered the Air Force as an officer in October of that year. It was a very strange time in the Air Force. They were actually cutting out a lot of personnel, Uh, downsizing was the term they used. So that's why I had kind of a three-month period before there was um, a spot available for me, essentially on active duty, and. started at this small base on the florida panhandle called hurlbert field which is a special base, small but with a big mission kind of the like tip of the spear, as you hear the the air force equivalents of the green berets or the navy seals people who do those things you can't talk about um, and maybe for that reason i'd never heard of the base because they do a mission you don't talk about um, so got there in october of 2006 and then ended up deploying in um, April of of 2000 pre-deployment training, and then arrived in Afghanistan in June of 2009. Mm -hmm. So I had a couple years, um, several years, if you count ROTC and frankly, none of us in my family, certainly not myself expected there to still be a war going on when I graduated. Um, As it turns out, there were two and then when I joined the air force, I figured I'm I'm an air force officer. I'm an air force public affairs officer. Like I'm not going to go to war. And it's not that I was opposed to it. It just seemed like such a a vague notion, you know, like most things are when you're 18 or in my case, a couple years older than that, but, you know, putting on something as weighty as a military uniform, you don't feel that weight until you have a chance to digest it a little bit or until it punches you in the face as it did for me
2: well then that leads us into the next question <laughs> what was that experience when you got over there i mean if, what was that punch in the face
1: it was a long protracted punch in the face so i actually volunteered to deploy and this was a time in the military where more or less everyone was deploying it was essentially an inevitability. I knew I was gonna go sometime, somewhere. And when an opportunity came along that I thought sounded rewarding, I, I took, took it and volunteered. Um, and most public affairs officers were going to major bases in Iraq or Afghanistan. And you know, from my perspective at that point, we're just kind of desk fighting press releases. And I didn't wanna do that. I wanted to do something more hands-on. I had also recently read the book Three Cups of Tea, which was really popular in 2008-2009, was kind of required reading for a lot of military personnel, um, and just really fell in love with the idea of working with locals and building capacity and, you know, that hearts and minds mission. Yeah. So I volunteered for a provincial reconstruction team, which was assigned to one of the Afghanistan provinces. I was in Paktia province, tiny little province in southeastern Afghanistan on the Pakistan border. And our mission was to build governance capacity by mentoring officials and undermining or eroding support for the the Taliban and um, Al-Qaeda and other factions while building support for the government. So um, trying to legitimize the government and help people get more access to Security, rule of law, basic services. Um, That sounds like a very lofty mission, and it was. And I definitely drank the Kool Aid going in and thought, you know, I'm going to be like Greg Mortensen, who wrote Three Cups of Tea. I'm going to be building schools and, you know, kissing babies and holding hands and singing kumbaya and all that, you know, wonderful, warm, fuzzy stuff. And did do some of that, you know, did a lot of like sitting around drinking tea and talking to locals. met some of the the women of Afghanistan, which was an amazing experience and not something that a lot of people have the privilege of doing and just, you know, talking through an interpreter um, because I am n- terrible with, with languages and, and only picked up very base- basic Pashtu phrases and mostly they involve like, you know, put your hands up, stop, um, but just getting a chance to, you know, actually Talk to the the local people um, with with no pretenses of, of politics or, or money exchanging hands but by and large um, it very quickly became apparent that we were not going to be changing the world in nine months and that realization hit me very hard um, i i fully admit i was quite naive and overly optimistic going in and the, that clash of, of expectations and reality um, was was a challenging one. Just just realizing, you know, the stories you hear about war from the media, from memoirs, from Hollywood, they communicates um, you know not not untruths necessarily, just far from the whole truth and and the full picture. Well, and especially there, if you're
2: yeah, go ahead. Sorry.
1: I was just going to say being being there on the grounds, um, you know, obviously my perspective was limited to a certain place and a certain time in a, a certain role, and, and definitely colored by the fact that I was wearing a military uniform and, and serving on military missions. But it was just so clear how incredibly complicated the situation was, and how much history and geography and political dynamics tribal dynamics played into everything that happened and you know coming in and trying to put a, a, a an american map of democracy over um a, a foreign land is just not something that you can do frankly um yeah
2: well i mean the ideological wars of world war one and world war ii were clearly defined those were simple terms in in, in many ways once we hit vietnam as a country That's the beginning of us not understanding, you know, a certain ideology that had nothing to do with uh, even our enemies at the time or why we were there. I mean, Vietnam was a shambolic, in my opinion, you know, war that we were in. And I I have to say that by the time we get to, you know, fighting Muslims in in Afghanistan and and, and, in Iraq, you know, we just we didn't have. A clear picture understanding of what that actually meant. I mean, it was an ideology that was completely foreign to us. And I'm I, not sure, I mean, I just watched the, the battery ram of all the documentaries that just came out recently, and you know, Netflix and so forth of the uh nine, you know, of 9 And the one on Netflix particularly goes into a history. So I'm just saying, I, I, I'm, a, I'm agreeing with you on some level. I'm just wondering. That's what I'm saying. By the time we got to Afghanistan, I don't know if you agree or if you disagree. And and you said that we were there, and we found ourselves there until you know last month or the begin the beginning of this month. I it, what what exactly it is was our mission at the end of the day, what we were trying to accomplish, and how quickly that fell, just like Saigon did in Vietnam. I mean, I'm just wondering the way you were talking about how the depiction of war in the media and the sort of jingoism that military life comes with, with the with the, particularly the rah-rah pictures that we had in 1940s and the 1950s about our services in World War Two and World War One, that parlayed into, you know, another whole different way of depicting war once you get to Vietnam. And that, I, I, I think there's a, just a, I don't know, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Ultimately, than just other than that, the yeah. When we entered that war, nine eleven, all of us were hungry for something. We were all angry. I was there in New York. I remember that day. I am, you know, as far left as Leo Trotsky, you know, Lord, I mean, it's been me personally. But I will say, I wanted blood that day. I was just as angry as anybody else, and that certainly stoked. I mean, I would have stoked anybody. So. You know, I felt as American as anybody on as, 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 as any red blooded Republican. You know, I was completely equally, and, you know, we were all one for one minute. Uh, the one thing I could talk about on 9 11 is that was the one time I've ever seen in my entire life an entire city as big as New York where it became one person, one body. One being. If somebody fell down in the throngs of people that were walking north of Manhattan, somebody fell down, everybody was there to pick them up. If they were, you know, people who the guys in the kiosks were handing out waters and hot, you know, Grace Papaya was handing out free hot dogs. Everybody became one. That line to give blood that which was never used once, all of it had to be destroyed because we didn't find anybody in the in the towers, that line was about five blocks long. It was ridiculous how many people were there. It was, um, so yeah, I mean, entering particularly in that time, there was certainly a mission to accomplish. And one that I, you know, I don't know how you feel, whether we got lost in the mission. I, you tell me.
1: Well, I don't think it was ever entirely clear what our, our mission was. Right. I mean, it was, it was certainly a component of it was to to get rid of al- al-qaeda or the taliban and th- those terms are kind of used interchangeably in a lot of ways and to you know get get out the the terrorists who were harboring osama bin laden and, and connections to 9 and, 11 and there's a lot of vagaries around that and i think you know th- there's some really great writing out there that um and, and books you can read about that initial I don't wanna call it a surge because it was very much not a surge, um, but the initial efforts in Afghanistan where it was you know, special operations forces and a lot of you know, intelligence gathering folks who were, were really working very specifically to understand who our enemies were and how to um, get rid of them. And, and were pretty successful in doing that um, very early on. And then the war just kept going. And the mission changed, and we got into this, you know, nation building effort and, and and winning hearts and minds. The provincial reconstruction team that I served on, that whole idea of, of PRTs actually came from Iraq. And um the, the model was was they thought, oh, this was successful in Iraq, let's use it in Afghanistan. And I found it ironic. Um, when I learned that because the infrastructure in Iraq is very different from most parts of Afghanistan and the geography in Afghanistan. You know, you've got um, the the urban centers that you have in Iraq um, don't exist for, for the most part in Afghanistan, except for like Kabul and, and a couple other very clustery areas. But, you know, by virtue of geography, there's all these little isolated villages. So taking this thing that that worked in, in one area, that's, very different and trying to put it over an, another nation and say, you know, this this worked, so it'll work here too. Right. Even the idea of a provincial reconstruction team, like we weren't reconstructing anything, we were constructing from the ground up. Um, this is a very long-winded, I think I'm losing my train of thought here, but just the, I, I guess that just goes to show that in a lot of ways, to me, at least, it seems like we were making things up as we were going. And, you know, in in some ways, that's inherent in war, you have to adapt and, and change as the situation on the ground changes. But I just, I think we very quickly lost track of what we were trying to do and understanding the the local landscape and people and situation and and the rich history of, of the area and yeah. and that disconnect really led us astray in, in a lot of ways and, and we never really firmly found our footing in terms of a mission um, and i can say you know also from from the military perspective it was very clear an almost a like a caustic joke that you know we're not fighting by the time I was there, a 10-year war in Afghanistan, we were fighting 10 one-year wars because with the rotation of yeah. units, wow. every time a new you know group of leadership comes in, they have their own priorities that either well, they have an agenda for or someone higher than them dictates an agenda for, and, and things just shift so rapidly. For example, my team inherited like $110 million worth of active construction projects in the province. These were things that had been, to some extent, coordinated with the the local government and their list of priorities in terms of getting, you know, education services and healthcare services, those kinds of things. Um, And very quickly that um, shifted when my unit arrived to stop spending we need to account for this money and make sure that we're you know being good stewards of taxpayer dollars which is definitely something to be aware of but um it became just very very clear to us that there had not been a lot of oversight in the past and a lot of these active construction projects were not feasible they were not going to be finished or they were you know built so poorly that um you could pick them apart with a fingernail uh, or there was corruption at the site, at uh, contractors were paying bribes to the Taliban to ensure security at the area or a government official bribed a government official in this town and the clinic that was supposed to be built there is going to be built in his, in his town now. So just a, a very complicated web. And, you know, we really could only access the, the outer rungs.
3: Um, Lauren, is it fair to say, uh, that you might have some mixed emotions then about our withdrawing, or do you see this as a good thing that we're we're out of there now? Because I can understand the investment, the emotional investment that you've just laid out so eloquently, having you know spent so much time there and written about it. I read your article that was published on September eleventh of two thousand nineteen, which seemed to suggest that it was time to get out of there, but not forget everything that had happened and what led us there, but where, where do you stand on that now?
1: Definitely mixed emotions. Um, I, I do think it was time past time to leave. Um, I certainly don't agree with how all of that played out. And I think that those two things are not mutually exclusive. You know, you can have regrets and, and feel mournful about things but also acknowledge that it's it's time for them to be over um and i i also fully acknowledge that i'm very privileged in my perspective in a lot of ways you know i i do have some friends who who were killed in afghanistan but i was not touched as closely or as as deeply as a lot of people were by that kind of sacrifice so i i can't even imagine um the, the way a lot of people are feeling about this. Um, I read a really wonderful account from an Afghan American who served in the military and likened our time there to um, you know, a surgeon who k- treats someone with cancer and that person goes into remission for 20 years. And then after 20 years, the cancer comes back. You know, yeah can't blame the surgeon or, or say that, um, you know, it was a bad thing or shouldn't have happened that the surgeon treated this person initially because the cancer just ultimately came back. And I, I, like to look for the, the pieces of hope. And, you know, I think about some things that, that my team did a lot of what we did, um, I feel like was, you know, spinning our wheels or, or digging holes or, or deepening holes that had already been dug. But I do think that there were some initiatives that that were worthwhile, like um, talking to those women, and we sponsored a, a training course for for women where they learned about their their constitution and their constitutional rights, and you know domestic violence situations, and you know some of this this stuff that we take for granted here um, in in the West that you know. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, impressing our enlightened values on on Afghanistan and and how that's not,
3: you know, a
1: good thing, regardless of the intentions behind it. And I agree in a lot of ways with that. But I also do think that there have been a lot of doors opened for a lot of people over 20 years, and I think we need to remember that. And I certainly hope that, you know, other veterans and those those touched by war out there don't feel like it was all in vain. Um, it, it's hard to hold on to that hope sometimes. And, and in a lot of ways, unfortunately, I think that we did just dig holes, <laughs> but, um, some lives were changed for the better. And I have to have to remind myself of that.
3: That's that's a, a great, uh, it's a, it's a nice sentiment, honestly, and, uh, and well put, you know, for making sense of such a complicated situation. I think it's, I think it serves everyone best to look at it positively, despite some of the mess that we all know seems to have gone on for the last 20 years there.
0: Lauren, when I read uh, one of your pieces um, where you uh, talked about the fact that you had the responsibility of bringing Beanie Babies to uh, the villagers, I believe, uh, in Afghanistan, and it, it, it was really um, intriguing when you went into depth about the Beanie Babies came from Indiana. They were sent most likely to the Eurozone, probably Germany or Spain, and then to, I believe, Kuwait, then into Afghanistan, to the particular province you were at, unloaded down a gravel path, and you had this responsibility um, the one thing that you didn't mention and I kind of thought more about is that the Beanie Babies were actually made in China. The reason I bring that up is uh, China creates this product that goes to the United States, comes around basically to the other side of the world again. What symbolism do you see in that? What do you think? We, I know you were bringing joy not only to the villagers and the residents of Afghanistan, but it seemed like some of the hardened military uh, men and women found some joy in uh, something as simple as a beanie baby. Um, but you were ultimately the person who was responsible for distributing this. And you were kind of almost like the gatekeeper of emotions. Uh, did you have any, has that ever occurred to you? The the symbolism or the momentum of that, something as simple as that? And also, does that just kind of let us know that w- no matter the difficulties or the horrors of war everyone every person kind of is on the same page emotionally uh, to a certain extent i guess that's the w- right way to say it
1: yeah i think you communicated that really well and i had never thought about the fact that the beanie babies themselves originated in china yeah, yeah those are some some well-traveled <laughs> stuffed animals there <laughs> and the the kind of the, the full fruit shot is the beanie baby whack home with um, service members or that they sent them in care packages back to their their kids like for a birthday or something when when I would open these boxes they was like, oh that panda's so cute my daughter loves pandas I want to want to send that home to her so yeah very well-traveled beanie babies um, I, and I have not so much at the time I think um, you know there's a limit to what you can kind of philosophically ponder when you're in, in a war zone. Uh, if you do too much of that, you'll drive yourself crazy. Mm-hmm. But certainly after the fact and, and writing about it, I thought a lot about the symbolism and, you know, what does this mean that we're receiving beanie babies? Um, there was an, an organization at the time called Beanies for Baghdad that collected beanie babies, you know, American surplus and shipped them out to Iraq and Afghanistan for um, goodwill missions, humanitarian type things. Um, And I kind of inherited it, I became the the point of contact for my unit, Um, And yeah, it's, you know, I, I think it speaks a lot to our American perspective and thinking, you know, these are, these are cute toys that American kids like, therefore, Afghan kids will like them too. And we had that experience a few times. I remember sitting in a meeting and watching a couple Afghan kids playing with their Beanie Babies very, very lovingly and gently. And it just, it was one of those moments where, you know, this transcends language barriers and and cultural barriers. These are just kids having fun and playing with their toys. But by and large, um, I think when we distributed Beanie babies, the kids were much more excited about the fact that they were coming from Americans. And this was some kind of American shit for, for, for lack of a better term, than the <laughs> fact that it was, you know, an adorable little cow. Um, <laughs> they they would get excited about, you know, crayons and pens. So we would stuff our pockets with, with pens because the kids loved pens. And that, you know, there's I'm sure you could infer things about that too. This is a communications tool and information, uh, but they also got excited about, you know, a single flip-flop sandal that ended up in a a load of humanitarian stuff. So it was just, you know, we were these aliens who were rumbling through their streets in these enormous, you know, as goals like a Humvee on steroids. And we would charge into their villages In all of our gear and get out and just start handing things to them i mean i I try to wrap my head around that perspective of, of a kid these these crazy foreigners who are just giving us stuff and oh there's a there's a toy in there cool all right you know it's um so i don't i don't think it necessarily had that that warm fuzzy intent that we were hoping it would um for me the most powerful Thing um, as George, you may have seen in in the the article I wrote about it. William with um, my fellow service members, and you know, kind of a seeing a softer side of them. Um, I, I would get these boxes addressed to me, and it became kind of a joke. Every every mail call, this was like the most reliable thing was Lieutenant Johnson is going to get a box or two <laughs> from Indiana with all of these beanie babies, and I would bring the boxes into my office, and within a few weeks of starting this routine, I started to get a crowd around me every time I was opening a box and people would just ooh and ah at the, the critters and you know see what there was. And, um, someone started a collection of sea creatures. Someone else was collecting all the bears. You know, I, I kept a couple of cats next to a picture of my actual cats. And, and it just became something where, you know, it was an opportunity for us to just, you know, acknowledge that life existed outside of our, our little little bubble in afghanistan and and you know learn about each other you know oh your, your daughter likes pandas well tell me about your daughter and it, especially with these you know burly you know army grunt soldiers just kind of seeing that um, that softer side was really impactful to me in a way that i hadn't expected
2: it's like frankenstein's monsters handing out uh, flowers to all the kids you know
1: <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs>
2: And Lauren,
0: uh, if I may, just uh, one more question, I guess, sort of related is, I know you mentioned media and Hollywood, uh, you know, depictions of the military. And uh, I guess for folks, at least my age and probably older, it was always seen as the domain of a male. Or, you know, when I think of movies like Full Metal Jacket or, um, you know, Born on the Fourth of July, Hamburger Hill, etc. It's usually a male. I, I don't ever remember seeing a woman in those films or in the G. show.
1: G.I. Jane. G.I. Jane. G.I.
0: Jane. Yep. Right. right. Which I, you know, I didn't give a fair shake to. Maybe I have. <laughs> But I think it's correct me if I'm wrong. When you were serving in the military, women were not, it wasn't a novelty anymore. They were, is it fair to say that when you were there, that women played a very important role and that's still currently, can you give us a little education and the listeners? A little bit about that experience being a woman in the military for folks like you know gen x that not really isn't used to maybe hearing those stories
1: sure yeah um yeah i will say it by the time i was there it, it wasn't a novelty but still a vast minority mm-hmm. and the the air force historically and probably still does um, have a higher percentage of of women than other services. Uh, The Marine Corps understandably is is the smallest. Um, So I think the experience varies dramatically depending on your service and and your your job, public affairs where I was tends to have more women. Um, I don't know if it's the nature of the work that just draws more more women. Um, And my own, Experience, again, in a deployed environment is limited to this provincial reconstruction team. But I was one of seven on a team of 80, so less than 10%. And um, tried not to think about it. Um, my, my team was wonderful. And thankfully, I didn't have to deal with a lot of the, the unique challenges that a lot of women do, um, the, the horrible things that women have to think about and fear. Um, Thankfully, I didn't have to, um, you know, I didn't encounter issues of, of assault. Any harassment was pretty low level. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, and I know that's not the case for, for a lot of women. Yeah. For me, my gender came into play most when I was interacting with the local population because Afghanistan and particularly areas like Paktia are so conservative and gender segregated. It was a very interesting experience being a woman. Um, I got um, on one hand the opportunity to talk to women, which the, the male soldiers by and large couldn't do. But I also was in kind of an awkward position when I was working with Afghan men, which were predominantly who we worked with. And this was for most of them, not the first time they'd seen a, a, a female. You know, we'd been there for nine, 10 years at this point. But still, I would meet our uh, government colleagues and, you know, kind of kind of looked like the men with all my gear on and my hair back in a ponytail. So um, they wouldn't really acknowledge my womanness until they got close and it became obvious. So I would be standing in a receiving line and a, a government official would be shaking hands and get to me and kind of go, oh, you're, you know, you're a woman. And some of them would skip right over me and shake hands to the person next to me. Some of them would kind of like warily like, okay, I think I need to acknowledge you because you're an American and you guys give us money. So I'll shake your hand. And then some were really, really excited to see me. Um, we actually had issues with women getting photographed and like clips of women on the local news, even when they weren't involved in what was happening in, in a mission because it became a fascination point for, for the locals to some extent. So. For me, um, that's kind of where that came into play the most. Um, And I will also add that, you know, I deployed in 2009 and something like, you know, 240,000 people had deployed um, at that time already. And they still did not have female specific body armor. So I was wearing body armor that for obvious reasons didn't fit me properly. Uh, 2012 was when they finally started piloting um, Female body armor. So,
3: is that, so that's changed finally. I mean, that seems just ridiculous.
1: A little wow. ridiculous, yeah.
3: That is. I, I'm not sure.
1: I I would assume. I I know they were piloting it at one point. I would assume they've adopted it. I hope they have. Um, but yeah, the, the military is. you know, It's like trying to turn the Titanic around. In in a lot of ways, um, my mom was pregnant when she was serving, and they didn't have maternity uniforms. Oh lord. And this was back in the early 80s, like and she was a, a military nurse, which is kind of the you know, long, longest standing military role that women have been involved in. So, yeah. just oh, yeah, very... my, my, Sorry, go my, ahead.
3: My, my, I'm sorry. My, my grandmother was a nurse in the Navy uh, during uh, the Korean War. But um, yeah, I mean, it speaks to what you were saying earlier, too how it felt like 10 one-year wars because there's such a turnover of leadership and interest priorities. How can you get anything done there when there's no through line of, of a directive? you know? And then things like body armor for people get fallen by the wayside. I mean, it's unbelievable to me.
1: But yet uh, they, we, <laughs> we switched the types of uniforms we were wearing a couple times. While I was in the service, over the course of like four and a half years, you think it was like yeah. a new
3: contract or something? Like, like yeah, it's just... like
1: a, someone at the top decided we need a new uniform, and maybe maybe there's you know legitimate reasons like this, you know, gray. <laughs> we we always joked that the the Air Force um, kind of grayish blue camo blended in nicely with a, a cubicle wall. That was about the only thing <laughs> it, it camouflaged with. But maybe there were some legitimate reasons behind it. But it did seem a lot like you know some general needed a bullet point for his end of tour report. So he had to initiate this change. Um, And I think there just was, and, and I'm sure still is so much disconnect between the people on the ground and the people, the higher ups making those decisions that a lot gets lost in the interim.
3: Yeah, Adrian spoke to something along those lines where they it took them years just to figure out a camouflage that actually matched the environment they were in. They were wearing these thing, these these uh, these uniforms that they stuck out like sore thumbs, you know, in the field and it's just another symptom same exact thing you're talking about, I think. They just they don't know and there's so many different directives throughout all those years, how can you get anything positive done? Sorry, I uh, just feel
1: and it takes so long for, for those changes to, to get made in you know, a, a legitimate, impactful way and then actually filter down into to practice. Sometimes by the time they get there, the situation has changed again. And another interesting example I can speak to is, you know, I, as I mentioned, accepted an ROTC contract shortly after 9-11. So I started um, my ROTC courses and training in 2002. Um, fall fall of 2002. And for my four years in ROTC, we were very much stuck in a more peaceful era. You know, our training involved marching and, you know, how do you square your corners and direct a, a group marching around? And how do you stand in formation when the flag is being raised? These are skills that I used never as an active duty officer. And we played volleyball and ultimate Frisbee. You know, there was not a lot of actual Preparation for for wartime service. We did do a field training um, exercise, which was you know a four weeks of more intense kind of our condensed version of of boot camp, which I fully admit is like Mickey Mouse camp compared to what um, a lot of people go through for their boot camp experience. But it took ROTC a very long time to adapt to the fact that we were a nation at war, and to adequately prepare. Um, and I can't speak to whether they, they fully got there because um, my experience was, was way back um, before that change really took hold. But yeah, it's just interesting to think about um, reacting when you're such an, an enormous organization driven by so many economic and political factors. How do you initiate change in a meaningful way and, and quickly enough to actually be what it needs to be?
0: Lauren, I know that your time is limited. I know you have your family to get back to, but I really would like to ask you about your upcoming project, your book. Can you tell us where um, that stands in the process? Are you currently writing? Or um, take us through that, if you don't mind.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, my, my book, my, my other baby, that has been in the works for 10 plus years at this point, basically since I left the military and went to get my master's in creative writing. Um, I entered my, my grad school program, a lot of vague thoughts and, and fragmented things that I felt I needed to express. And, and I left with a thesis that was starting to resemble some something like a book. And I've been working on that ever since, um, centered on my time in Afghanistan, but my, my mom became a big part of that story as well. And, and again, trying to understand how her experience influenced me and what it means to be a multi-generational military family um, and a lot around communication, you know the, the stories that we tell each other and that we tell ourselves and that we as a nation project that shape expectations like I had when I went to war and you know, that influenced me in, in volunteering for the military and then volunteering to deploy. So I'm very happy to announce that I have a publisher for my book now. Um, uh, A wonderful military veteran, Tracy Crow, has um, written or edited several books herself and has started um, a publication house dedicated to military stories. It's called Millspeak Books, and my book will be out with them in spring of 2023. So right now I am, I'll say, in quotes, done writing. Uh, But as writers will tell you, they never feel done, and I'm sure there will be more revisions in the next year or so, as we get that ready um, for publication. So, yeah, looking forward to to getting that out in the world.
0: Well, we look forward to that. We want to say thank you for your service and thank you for your time. roger and i really appreciate it we'd love to have you back i know there's a million you know there's quite a few questions i would still like to ask you but uh, i know you've got your twins to get home to. so uh, you're welcome back here anytime again thank you for your service and your time and i know this is a a pretty uh significant day for everyone a day of reflection so we don't want to pull you away for too long that being said roger uh do you have anything else you'd like to uh, add
2: that was a fantastic episode lauren i cannot appreciate enough you coming on and uh putting up with us and uh telling us your stories and and giving us a perspective of you know your time in the afghan war and and your service to the to our country and i thank you for what you you know attempted to do to try to make lives a little better i I appreciate that very very much thank you so much this was a great episode and you were it was spot on, but I'd love to have you back someday.
1: Well, I'd love to come back. Thank you for, for having me. And thanks for the great conversation. And yeah, wishing you both a, a peaceful day of remembrance.
2: I, I got to go do a schedule for a movie. So there's no peace for me. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, I say, thank you for listening to this episode of $5 Buzz. And uh, remember to hit subscribe on our YouTube channel as well as a like and or subscribe to our Spotify and uh, or our Apple iTunes account. If you have any comments or questions, any potential guests or topics you'd like us to research or do, please get back to us at $5 buzz and that's F-I-V-E-D-O-L-L-A-R-B-U-Z-Z at gmail.com. And we'll get back to you as soon as we can after our day of reflection here on 9-11. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you.
1: Thank you.